Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are at the point where where uh, Pharaoh has told them to get out, and they leave. And remember, they take <clears throat> they take booty from the Egyptians as they leave. They borrow things uh, from the Egyptians as they leave. Uh, and so now we are at this that at this point where the drama gets really going. What happens? And so um, the king of Egypt is told that the people fled and Pharaoh's heart and now that of his servants. His servants have been pushing him to get rid of them because of the plagues. But now that they're gone, right, Pharaoh's heart and that of his servants changed regarding the people. They said, what now have we done that we have sent free Israel from serving us? I'm reading a book on tape called um, On Tape. I just dated myself, um, called Dancing with Elephants, written by a person who has Huntington's and has done a great deal of work and study around, uh, he had done conflict, um, healing and stuff around the trauma of conflict, um, and then decided to turn that on himself when he got the genetic information that he would, in fact, die of Huntington's after watching his mother and her gener- and the generation above her die of it, decline first and then die of it. Um, and so he started, started studying with some masters like Thich Nhat Hanh and some of these other brilliant people. Anyway, I bring it now because I just listened to this morning as I was getting ready and coming here. And he's talking about losing faculties. And he's also talking about this happens to anyone with any disease, any chronic disease, and just human beings who all have, right, something called death, right, at the end, right? We're all heading there. And aging is part of, right, of, of holding that reality. And so he says, that one of the things that was really important to him was this teaching that letting go of what we think we're entitled to, letting go of our entitlements is one of the methods used to um, to hold the relationship to what we no longer have access to. So I'm, I'm entitled to walk, right? So then if I, it, it's often not until we lose something, right, that, that our, entitlement to it on all our feelings about being entitled to it get activated that's exactly what i thought of when i read this having just heard that right what it's when the people are it's when the slaves are gone that par oh and now his servants who had been saying get rid of them get rid of them like once they're gone right the egyptians and pharaoh are like wait a minute what we are entitled to the labor of the slave people those hebrews Right. And, and and all the activation that comes with that. Um, in this case, it's going to be aggressive. Right. It's going to be really aggressive. Like other times we turn it on ourselves and it's depression. Um, right. But anger is a real response to our entitlements. Right. And what it feels like when we lose something we feel like we're entitled to. So that is the moment here. And now that rage. Right. Is on the grand scale. That rage is on the national scale. Mm. That they are entitled to the uh, to the Hebrews, and the Hebrews had the nerve to be gone. And he had his chariot harnessed, while his fighting people he took with him. And he took six hundred selected chariots and every kind of chariot of Egypt, teams of three on them all. 
So 600 times three, it's a lot of people. Um, remember chariots go really fast. Chariots have cutting things on the, you know, edges of the wheel. Chariots go way fast and they have, uh, archers on them. So they are like t- the tank of the ancient world. Well, maybe the elephants were the tanks of the ancient, but you know, like the idea is it moves and you can shoot from it. So this is, this would have been a terrifying image, right? Sitting around the campfire, right? Okay. So, um, and, Yudhe made the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, strong-willed. Um, at God strengthened the heart of Pharaoh so that he pursued the people of Israel. While the people of Israel were going out beyond Ramah with a uh, high hand, right? So this, you know, forward kind of, you know, and the Egyptians pursued them. And overtook them encamped by the sea, all of Pharaoh's chariot horses, his riders, and his army, by P. Hahirot before Baal Tzephon. So Pharaoh, as he draws near to the people, of, they, they lift their eyes, the people of Israel lift their eyes, and lo, Egypt, Egypt is coming after them. They were very afraid, and the people of Israel cried out to Yudhevafe. Verse 11, they said to Moshe, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness? Mazot asita, what is this you have done to us to take us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing that we spoke to? to you about in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve Egypt. Indeed, better for us serving Egypt than our dying in the wilderness. And Moshe said to the people, don't be afraid. Do that matzav thing, right? Do, I mean, do that matzeva thing, like a stand firm. Or u et yeshuat Adonai. And behold, the Salvation of Yudhevavhe, who will work on y'all's behalf today, because now here's an interesting verse to figure out how to translate. Ki asher et mitzrayim hayom. It's a tangled sentence, even in Hebrew. So something about seeing Egypt, that the way that you see Egypt, or that you see Egypt. Hayom, today, lotos fulirotam, you won't anymore see them. Od, again, adolam, forever. So lots of commentary written on what does this mean. We'll unpack it in a minute. Adonai lachem lachem ve'atem tacharishun. So God will fight for y'all. Y'all, shut up. Vayomer Adonai al-Moshe. And God then says to Moshe, Ma tzitzak, again with the ma, I did a whole shiur with y'all on ma, on these what's. What, 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 what. We did a whole shiur on it. Ma tzitzak. So Moshe saying, the people say, ma asita, what is this you've done to us, right? And so then Moshe's got his stuff going on that he's saying to the people. Then God turns to Moshe and says, Mazot, what's this you calling out to me? You crying out to me. Speak to the people, Israel, 
and yisau, make them, I mean, cause them to go forward, like to, to move. And you, haremet matcha, lift up your staff and stretch it over the yam, over the sea, right? And, and split it. And let the people Israel come betol hayam into the sea by yabasha on dry land. Vaani, while I hineni mechazeket lev mitraim, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the heart of mitraim here. This refers to Pharaoh, right? Strong, meaning resistant, and he's gonna come after y'all. And I will be. George's favorite stuff. I will be glorified through Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots, and his riders. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yudhevafe when I'm glorified through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his riders. The messenger of God that was going before the camp of Israel moved on and went behind them. The column of cloud moved ahead of them and stood behind them and came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Here were the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. This one did not come near this one all night. So they are protected. There is this holy activated barrier between um, Israel and the Egyptians. Moshe stretches out his hand over the sea, and God caused the sea to go back with a fierce east wind all night and made the sea into firm ground. Thus, the waters split. Believe me, nobody, nobody is clear about how to, how to imagine exactly what this is supposed to be describing. The, the people of Israel came through the midst of the sea upon the dry land, the waters a wall for them on their right and on their left. But the Egyptians pursued and came in after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his riders into the midst of the sea. Now it was at the daybreak watch that God looked out against the camp of Egypt in the column of fire and cloud and panicked the camp of Egypt. God loosened the wheels of their chariots and made them to drive with heaviness. Heavy. What, where else do we see this word used? When we're talking about Pharaoh's heart was made heavy. Right? So again, the, the, you know, Alliteration of his heart was made heavy. Now God is going to make the chariot wheels heavy, right? So that it was hard for them to drive. And so Mitraim, again, Mitraim here doesn't mean Egypt. It means Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, I must flee before Israel for Yudhevavhe does battle for them against Egypt. Then God spoke to Moshe, stretch out your hand over the sea and the water shall return upon Egypt, upon its chariots and upon its riders. Moshe stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned at the face of daybreak to its original place as the Egyptians were fleeing toward it. And God shook the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned. They covered the chariots and the riders of all of Pharaoh's army that had come after them into the sea. Not even one of them remained. But the people Israel had gone upon dry land through the midst of the sea. The waters a wall for them on their right and on their left. So God delivered Israel on that day from the hand of Egypt. Israel saw Egypt dead by the shore of the sea. And Israel saw the great hand that yod heh had wrought against Egypt. The people held yod heh in awe. 
And here we go. This is where we're going to stay after this. Vayaminu ba'adonai. And they believed in Avdo, and in Moshe, his servant. All right, we'll do a little bit with this scene, and then we will move on to that last verse, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Yes? This is Right. So the Nachshon ben Aminadav story is so familiar to us that we think it's in Torah, but it's not. It's not the Torah text. That's a Midrash. But the Midrash has become so favorite and so beloved that people think of it as, wait, wait a minute, where's, where's Nachshon? It's like, you know, well, along Nachshon's where all the other Midrashim are about what happened right here. And there's plenty. There's reams of Midrashim about what's going on here because it's so odd and it's so, some of the Hebrew so tangled. Some of the imagery is like really hard to try to figure out. There's actually two versions here of this story. One is that the, the water blows back and then it comes down. One is that it splits, right? I mean, so there's, if they're dead in the sea, then they would sink. Why do they see them on the shore? How do the Israelites see them on the shore if they're dead? If they would all sink with their armor, if, right? If the sea splits and then comes in, they all are just at the bottom of the sea. But we have another version where there's this big tsunami that clears the way and then comes back and blows them all onto, like it obliterates them and leaves them broken on the other shore. So, so there's a lot going on here that's really hard to wrap our heads around. Yes, David. So, oh, the way you translated it, it's, it's, it's in the popular imagination and in the illustrations you see, Moses is splitting the Red Sea. Here it seems to be happening just in, in your translation, not necessarily in the way I've read other translations, but it seems to be something that happens all night. It happens over a long period of time. And then the, and then they get stuck and then it comes back in. It's more slow. It's more like a get stuck. Low tide, basically, and then the tide comes back. But you know, if you were to ask somebody, like we all have this image right. of these walls of water, you know. Um, so it's just like Nachshon. So, so to repeat the question, David is raising the the point that we are used to seeing this story or, or this moment as um, this dramatic, huge sweeping to either side of the water that happens as soon as Moshe stretches his hand out over the water. There is some of that here. So this is not just my translation. This is the, the translation that I'm working from. Okay. So so everything I read to you is right there in the Hebrew. Which So what I'm saying is there's two stories put together. There's one where it happens all night and the water slowly, you know, like starts piling up at right and then like a tsunami, like boom, like, you know, obliterates them. There's another version where it parts and they walk through, right? Pharaoh comes behind them and then the waters close. Okay, so we can, just like in so many other places, we see two stories sort of fighting each other a little bit and resolving in a way that is really... We see two stories that have to be on the page. You have to have all of the revered traditions in the book or people won't buy it. (laughs) This is the new national history. The Torah is the new national history. That's why it's written. 
These stories are put together by a redactor who is trying to bring the North and the South into a permanent alliance, into a permanent understanding of being one nation. Think about what that meant in our country. North and South, one nation. What did that wind up being? A bloodbath. Okay, so it was it was just as hard for them but there, the idea is to have there not be civil war to try to really bring people together. Then that means everybody has to buy the new national. Here's our new story of who we are as one united people. Well, then you better have both, right? The war of Northern aggression represented there, right? <laughs> you, you have to have both versions or, or people aren't going to buy the book. Which is so interesting. Right. And so it's, so it's not that they didn't understand at good editing, right? It's that the attempt is just to get both versions down on the page so that you have people buying into a new text, a new story, a new iteration of their history, yeah. their sacred history, their mythic history. I don't understand God felt it necessary to hurl the Egyptians into the sea when they were already fleeing. So basically, she or it or whatever God got what God wanted by um, leaving the or allowing the Israelites to to flee or to leave Egypt and no longer be. So you understand what Yod Hevavhe wanted was to (laughs) to have the he. It's a real question. So Betsy's saying, if they're already fleeing, why does God have to hurl them into the sea yeah. when God's getting what God wants, which is the freedom of the people? Because that's not what God says God wants. What does God say God wants? What God wants to destroy all Egypt. No. God wants to be glorified. Wants them to You're not going to be glorified by the enemy runs away. What does it say about God? Talk to George about that. Talk to George. George has been working through this for how long we've oh. we been together doing this? 13 years, George has been working through this part of the Torah. So, and this concept, this set of concepts, that's, that's the text. God wants to be glorified. You're glorified by wiping out the most powerful army in the known world or makes God into the most powerful God. And everyone can now see it and everyone will know it. That's fear, fear, because I'm running away is not the same at, it's clear the text understands something you're not getting, which is you glorify a God by the God destroying the opposing army. That is how a God is glorified in the ancient world. That's how it works. Look at any other ancient Near Eastern text. Their God helps them decimate the opposing army. That That is just kind of Godding 101 in the ancient world, right? Whoever destroys the enemy, that is the God everyone in the region will now worship. It's the victorious God. Do you want to be on the side of the losing God in a place where war is common and your children are taken into slavery if you lose? Who's, who do you want to be your God? The winner or the loser? Well, my feeling is God won before. Sure, but you're not an ancient Near Eastern person whose child might be carried into slavery. So first of all, this never happened. That's number one. Number two, if you're writing something that never happened, how are you going to write it and tell it? 
you're going to write it and tell it from your fantasy of what victory looks like. And that is not the enemy who's kept you in slavery for 400 years, fleeing the scene and retreating. That is not the story you're going to write and tell, right? We, we might prefer that, but we're not writing. We didn't write the story. Aren't we also taught that we should mourn the loss of the people? That's Midrash. And, and how that applies to today's situation in Gaza. That, I hear that saying, we have to feel sorry for the people who are dying in Gaza, even though they're the enemy. So in the Midrash, there is celebration in heaven. It's not humans. The angels are celebrating this victory. That's what one does. When you decimate the enemy, you celebrate. So the angels are celebrating. And in the Midrash, God snaps at the angels. Why are you celebrating when my children are drowning in the sea? I just read in preparing for y'all today that that's one version. I did not know that there was a second version that says God is referencing the Israelites in the sea. Like my, my creatures are in danger and you're already celebrating. So there's two versions. One that, that's like the Israelites aren't out of it yet. And the other is the Egyptians are dying. Right. So, so what are you partying for? They're still my creatures. So, so what generations have done is take from that. That this is why we take the 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 wine out of the cup at the ten plagues is that we should have rachmanis, we should have compassion for even those that we consider our enemies. Elena, did you have your hand up? George. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's the motivation of God at this point. Yes. Yeah. Gaining glory, as I said to Betsy, is the point. Yes. No, if it's a fantasy, I mean, why didn't they edit out that sarcastic line? But, you know, I mean, that's like my favorite source of story, actually. One man of grace. Right. So David is lifting up the uh, incredible line, the very Jewish response right to no, it's, it's, all of this it's, it's, you know, well, is it because there's no great not enough graves in Egypt that you took us out here to die it's right it's a hundred percent it's so Jewish <laughs> right um so they speak and so uh Rabbi El Shai um in her Torah commentary on this Parsha brings a New Yorker cartoon and they're on safari the family's on safari and and the the dad is you know got his safari hat on and he's looking at a map and he says okay yes we're lost but the important question is whose fault is it <laughs> right right so see like that's what's happening in this moment she brings it for exactly this moment that it's like when we get afraid right our our first response is often who do i blame like how can i project out onto someone else the villain role Right. So I I need to blame somebody. And we do this a lot. Right. And when we get angry, which is often fear, then then we look for. Right. Whose fault is it that I'm feeling this way? Um, The the world's answer. It's the fault of the Jews. Yep. 
I agree. But um, but for us, we seem to we seem to understand that we immediately look to what leader can we blame for what's happening, right? And we're doing that now. We always do it. Okay. So um, all right. What else did we want to um lift up here? I I, I love also. Rami Shapiro does a beautiful thing with verse 13. Um, and Moshe says to the people, um, don't be afraid, stand firm and witness, right? God's deliverance that God will work for you today. You will never see the Egyptians like this again. So Rami Shapiro uh, says that there's two kinds of fear, the kind of fear that freezes and the kind of fear that motivates. Um, and what he's saying is um, that he's, what Moshe is saying to the people is don't go to that kind of fear, right? The kind that makes you unable to, to move, to do anything. Um, and that, uh, that people want to say they're afraid of the future. They're afraid of the unknown to cross through this. And, and Rami so brilliantly says we're, we're never, it's impossible to be afraid of the future. What we're afraid of is that the future contains something that's happened to us in the past. There is no way to be afraid of the unknown. If, it, if it's unknown, there's nothing to be afraid of. What we're afraid of is that something that's happened to us that's deeply painful is out there in that future. That We're afraid of what we already know. We're afraid of pain we've already suffered, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful insight. They're, they're transposing right their fear of, you know, that they've experienced as people who are oppressed they're they're casting that into their future. Yes. Um, right. So um, the other thing is um, that Moshe says, take courage and see. Moshe urges them not to freeze, but he doesn't yet ask them to move on. He gets it that they're kind of stuck for this moment and that before they take those steps, they're going to have to muster their, they're going to have to face their fear and muster their courage. So he says, take courage, right? You're going to have to face your fear and you're going to have to figure out how to move forward anyway. Um, return to Egypt is one option, but you're going to have to figure out, right, the courage to, to have another option be your answer. Speak to the people Israel, God says, right? So God says to Moshe, don't, why are you crying out to me? We don't have no evidence that Moshe is crying out to God. But God says, why are you crying out to me? Speak to the people and tell them to move forward. I love where Rami says, speak to the people. His parsing of that is speak, don't argue. Speak, don't yell. Speak, don't command. Speak to the Israelite people. Speak to the, where they are. Speak to them, right? And... um and, and help them. That's what's going to help them, right? Be able to move forward and let them move forward. Rami parses this as let them, not make them, right? As long as Moshe thinks he's responsible for the people, he's trapped. So let them, meaning it has to be them. They have to do it. Um, and you can't drag them, <laughs> you know, like, they ha- they have to move. They have to be ready to do that. They have to face their fears and move forward anyway. And and Rami parses this whole business of God saying, "Why do you cry out to me?" Rami parses it as um, Moshe's putting on a good front, saying, "Be be brave, my people. Like just God will take it." But inside, Moshe's flipping out, mm-hmm. 
And God hears Moshe's internal flipping out. Mm-hmm. And that's what God is speaking to. That God knows Moshe, in fact, is crying out to God, wait, do something. Where are you? Right? You know, I've just assured them, well, shut up. And um, and that, that so Rami says, so until Moshe deals with his own you know, Mishigas and his own split, whatever, and his own internal, you know, cognitive dissonance, he can't lead them forward. Um, and so I just think it's a beautiful way to to look at this scene, which is one of my favorites um, in all of time. You know, the, 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 where they got maybe Moshe is like thinking the same thing, you know, like as cheeky as that. As cheeky as it sounds, maybe Moshe is thinking the same thing. Was there not enough graves in Egypt? All right. Rami Shapiro would agree that Moshe's got his own stuff going on right here. That's pretty intense. Say it. I I can't hear you. Nachman. Nachman? Oh, 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 don't let fear be everything. Right. Right. All the world is a narrow bridge. But the important thing is usually translated as is not to be afraid at all. But the original version is closer to don't let fear be everything. It's not that you're not going to be afraid, but don't let that be everything or we'll, we'll never, we'll never move a step forward on that bridge. If you're on a very narrow bridge, duh, the normal healthy response to that would be Fear. Because if you're not afraid, you're likely to fall off. If you're afraid crossing that bridge, you're going to be careful and hopefully you'll make it. But, but if you let fear be everything, you're not going to be able to take one step on, onto the bridge. Okay. Yeah. Rabbi Rami Shapiro, um, is a teacher, rabbi, uh, extraordinaire. extraordinaire. Um, very much into mindfulness and meditation. No, he's in Florida. But he was here as the guest speaker. But he he he's in, he lives in Florida. Yes, he's here in America. Yes, he's here in America. Um, look him up. He's amazing. Um, he's published many books. Um, no, no, he he was early on in the first iteration of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. He left his very successful congregation to take the head of position at Mativta, which was the early organization that became the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. So really trying to spread the mindfulness, meditation, um, and everything that brings in, you know, when we, yeah, El Shai and, and Rami Shapiro, like there, it's all about bringing that wisdom into Torah or, or taking, finding that Torah, like where's that stuff in our, in our narratives? He's wonderful. Okay. But, he wrote a Torah commentary and I was on his email list. My, my sheet was an email that I printed, uh, you know, my notes from him and his comments um, were a weekly email 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he never put it in a book and I can't find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So my hard copies in my hard folders for every Parsha are, is, is the only access I have. So I am grateful every day that my teacher recommended that we have a folder for every Parsha. And as you find stuff, you drop it in. 
Um, and so when Daniel Cher laughs at me <laughs> for my 53 folders and goes, you know, there's a thing called Dropbox. I'm like, the Pishers, unbelievable. Okay. They're just Pishers. It's like, no, I need the hard, I need my hard copy. All right. So let's look at, let's go into the really crazy place of my process. All right. So looking at this verse, and when Israel saw the wondrous power which God wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Yudhevave. We've talked a bit about Yerah, right? We've talked a bit about awe and fear. They had faith in Yudhevave and in God's servant Moses. Something drew that verse to my attention. So I do what I always do on Safari. I click on that verse, then click on the right hand side, and you get all of this, you get commentary, all of the commentary on this verse. So Huh? So easy. so easy. So I looked, I looked at the commentary and, and I forget what it made, originally drew me to. Oh, it was originally a commentary that I'm going to show you in a minute. And I'm like, right. Emmet ve'emunah. Right. So I'm looking at Ibn Ezra. I'm looking at medieval commentary on this verse and look what it says. Vayaminu ba'adonai. They believed they were faithful, whatever in Adonai. What does Ibn Ezra interpret that to mean? Shehu emet. What did they believe? That he is truth. That he. That he. That he. God. Who is he? He is she. Yeah. Yes. From from grade school, we learned that. Who is he? He. Ma. Ma is who. Who. Ma, no, me is who, who is he, he is she. Right. So, and they, and they, what did they believe? What, what happened for them that, that, that shifted all of a sudden? They believed Shehu Emet, that God is truth. And they believe in Moshe, that what he's doing is actually the will of God and what, what God is commanding. So I'm like, wait a minute. So Emunah here is connected by Ibn Ezra already to Emet. So, Belief in God means belief that God is truth. Huh. So then I'm like, well, what is, what is this Emmet Emunah business? What's going on? So I go on and truly, even Ezra says in a commentary actually on Genesis, I'm trying to figure out this connection between Emunah and Emmet, faithfulness, belief, and truth. And I get from him, from Ibn Ezra, that the word truth, emet, comes from emunah. I'm like, what? That makes no sense. Aleph memtav, emet, coming from emunah, with a n. Hebrew is a tripartite root system, three-letter roots. One letter being different is the is a big deal. It's huge. It's, it's the meaning, like for us, between S-E-A and S-E-E. There's a difference in that one vowel change, a big difference, right? A complete, like it's a completely different word. So I'm like, wait a minute. How does emet come from? That can't be right. So I go to, as one does, the BDB. I go to the Brown Driver Briggs Biblical Dictionary. And here you can see on the right, those of you who read Hebrew, Brown Driver Briggs, right? That's my source, the Brown Driver Briggs. 
dictionary, the BDB. All right, so I look in the BDB under the root of emunah. What is the root of emunah? Amen. Aman. So here you can see it's a verb, confirm or support. And then we get all the cognates in Arabic and right all of these other languages and Aramaic as well, Ethiopic and Assyrian. Um, that's what the BDB does. So if you're interested in where the Hebrew comes from, you get the cognates in other languages. And in the Kal version, it's Omain, a verb meaning to support or nourish. So what does that mean? Right? This is where you go down the rabbit hole. If emunah is faith and belief, and the root of emunah is aman, which means to confirm or support, how does that root affect how I might bring to y'all and translate and discuss emunah? Right? Do you see where I'm go- you see where it goes? It starts to get like really interesting. It's like, well, for some of us who are nerds, it's like, okay, so if confirmed support is what we're starting with, then how does the BDB interpret emunah? And there it is. Firmness. So we go from confirm or support. If we broaden that out a little and we get a derivative concept from that, it's firmness steadfastness, fidelity. That's emunah. That's the root of emunah. Not belief the way we think of it, right? And the idea came to me actually from this text by Rabbi Art Green on our Parsha, brought by Rabbi Larry Bach of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. What does Art Green say about emunah, this this word in our verse? Emunah in the Bible has the sense of affirmation and trust, a commitment of the entire self to the truth as told, seen, or witnessed. Here we go. Here's here's emunah and emet again, right? Rabbi Arthur Green is tying emunah to emet. So emunah for us in the Bible isn't a leap over something. I believe right? And there's no evidence for it. It's the opposite. Emunah and emet are relate. They are derivatives. Emunah is that sense of affirmation and trust and commitment to truth as we witness it. And as Larry Bach is going to say, as we experience it. Israel saw the mighty hand that God had used in Egypt. The people became devoted to Yudhei and trusted is how he's interpreting that word emunah. Not they believed, they trusted in Yudhei and his servant Moshe. They trusted in their experience of what was happening. Belief is too intellectual a term. To believe can mean to lend credence to a particular set of propositions In later philosophical Hebrew, the word is used in just that way. But for the Bible, as well as for the early rabbis, emunah connotes affirmation with the entire self. Affirmation even unto martyrdom. This is more than one would do for mere belief in an idea, especially one that is not proven. All right, why why do I like this? Why did I decide to chase down this rabbit hole? Because I believe just like my feelings about the word God and the way people misuse it and then say that's what we mean, I feel the same thing about belief. 
when people talk about being a believer, you know, or whatever, it's like there's this implication that that means you jump over all evidence and believe anyway. I loved that what Rabbi Green is bringing to us is the biblical understanding of they believed means they trusted what they experienced. They believed because it was truth for them. But isn't it fraud? They trusted what they believed. I couldn't, I couldn't follow it. So say it again. They trust what they saw. They trusted what they saw. Was God's and what they saw was God's action. Was God's action. Right. It was not just they trusted what they saw, what they saw was God in action. So they, they trusted what they saw, and what I hear you saying is, and they identified that as God in their lives. Okay. And I think there's a step beyond that, and then that caused them to act. Yes. So this, you're saying that that leads to, to action, right. Judith? Right. Okay. The, Okay, so Rabbi Larry Bach says, and he brought the rabbi, I meant to cite him as bringing the Rabbi Arthur Green quote about this parsha. So in contrast to the popular and classically Christian notion of faith as believing in that which cannot be seen, our our tradition suggests that it was precisely the fact that the people saw that allowed them to believe slash trust slash half a cultivating that sort of emunah it seems to me is precisely why we practice meaning mindfulness practice what does the insight in insight meditation mean after all if not that we apprehend in some way which is real emet ve emuna we practice in order to gain awareness of what is to discover where we sit amidst the ever-changing reality of what is happening right now. Wow. Wow. Okay. So so what Larry Bach is saying is this kind of emunah is really a practice that we have to continually figure out what's true. Right? Yael Shai says this all the time for those of us who meditate together on the, with these texts. Yael Shai says this all the time. Rami Shapiro says it all the time. Well, how are you going to know what's true and not just what's chattering and nattering away in here, right? I'm worthless. I never get to where I want to get to. I knew it. I knew it couldn't be, right? All the stuff that we think is true, we have to practice hard to drop beneath that, to be in this moment and to meet what's true from a different place. That is what cultivates emuna. As we confront what is, because right, El Shai always says, "Is it true?" Right, and right, I start nattering away about they're not going to like this. You might like going down these rabbit holes, but you're going to bring it to them, and they're going to be, "This is stupid. This is crazy. I'm bored. I'm lost," and and you'll fail. Right. The question is, is that true, or is that my fear and all of my past experiences of failure? coming forward into this moment, right? Is it true they'll hate it? How could I possibly know? But if you don't go in there and preach it, they're less likely to, to, to go with you. If I let, right? So I don't know, that's a bad example because it's about the future, but it's all of this 
junk we bring that practice is about getting underneath. And sometimes maybe it is true that they hated it. Okay. Is it true what tends to follow from that? You're a terrible teacher. Right? Is that true? Or did I have a lesson that didn't she or that didn't go so well? This is the work. It's the work of a lifetime. And it's every single day we have to do this work of cultivating emuna by, <laughs> by, by cultivating a relationship to emet. What's true for us? All right. So, yes. Sorry. No, I was just, I'm going back to the, the dual narratives of the, of the, um, going back to the dual narratives at the scene. Sea party and this image, the, um, the total result going through, you know, you assume that they could have got stuck just like the Egyptians, but the not part is that what, whatever, whatever, whatever they have, they don't get stuck in the mud. And the Egyptians do get stuck in the mud. And I'm just bringing it back to the Emunah. You know, it's, it's like an attitude. Uh, that one, you know, it's the same mud, but one right. has... So David is saying the Egyptians got stuck in the mud? The Israelites didn't. Like Judith was saying, that something about their attitude, something about Emunah being operative in their, in their experience, maybe allowed them to not get stuck. Well, I think that's pretty much the battle we face every day, right? Is it, am I going to get stuck in the mud? Right. Or is there something that's going to propel me towards picking up one foot and put, there's a midrash that says, like, even the midwives, I mean, even the lowliest handmaidens saw the miracle of all this stuff, all the fish, all the everything in the walls of water on either side of them. Um, and this was, it was a vision of God at work that even the lowest maidservant, you know, experienced. But Ruvain and Shimon were going, God, it's so muddy. Ugh, this is disgusting. And my, these are good sandals. <laughs> I like, I gave all of my rations for these sandals. And they fetch all the way across. And the Midrash says, so they missed the miracle. So like the miracle happened. But if, if you're fetching about the mud all the way across, did you experience the miracle? And it's like sitting at the edge of the Grand Canyon with a paper bag over your head, right? The Grand Canyon hasn't changed. The Grand Canyon's there. It's, did you experience it? And right, so it's very much this idea of it's an active thing. Are you looking at the mud? Are you stuck in it? Or even if you're moving through it, is that all you're focused on is the mud? Then you've missed the, the you missed the entire miracle. No mud, no lotus. That's what El Shai brings to this discussion. No mud, no lotus. Okay. So now looking at, okay, well then what do we do with this idea about emet? Oh, okay. What, so how does emet come from? We saw how emunah comes from omen. We get that connection. What connection is emet? Aleph mentav, truth to that original shoresh. That original root about support and firmness. What? So let's go to the BDB because that's the only way we're going to know. The and, and and I was suspicious. I was suspicious that Emet came from Emuna. It came, came from Amen. Amen. But there it is. This is right from the BDB. Emet noun feminine firmness, faithfulness, truth from Amen. The BDB doesn't lie. 
So that means there is a direct connection with our word for truth coming from this. So, so, so if Omain is the root, is the parent, then the two siblings are Emunah and Emet. That is fascinating to me. Our word for truth and our word for belief come from the same root. One doesn't precede the other. Do you know what I mean? They are both descendants, direct descendants of Omain. Are they both affirming? I don't know what that means. Well, are they both affirming the other two? I am I, looking at that whole triangle because I've never had that triangle exist before. So I was excited about it, so I brought it to y'all. But okay, so then what does that mean? If 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 truth comes out of trust, belief, or belief, trust is a direct corollary to truth. Like what 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 do we do with that? So how has that been connected by other folks in our tradition, Emunah and Emet? Well, let's look at the Zohar, an early work, right, of mysticism. Rav Chizkiah opened with a verse, and righteousness, Sedek, shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness, Emunah, the girdle of his reins. So Rav Chizkiah is bringing a verse from Isaiah. This is the game, and I don't mean game in a, in a silly, trivial way. This is the game the rabbis played to find and mine the Torah for spiritual truth and guidance. They go to every place. They see Emunah in the Torah. Where do they see Emet and Emunah in the Torah? And then they start doing what we're doing. How does the one reflect on the other? So Emunah appears in Isaiah. So Hezekiah brings this Emunah business from Isaiah. Righteousness is faithfulness, and faithfulness is righteousness. So here he's linking tzedek and emunah. Okay, fine. That's where it starts. That's not what we're concerned with. We're concerned with the next part. Faithfulness, emunah, at the time that she is joined with emet, with truth, is for joy. And all faces smile. Then she is called emunah, faithfulness. Then she is considered emunah, and there is no emunah without emet. So other folks in our tradition found this connection interesting between like emunah and emet to the point where he says, and where it says in the Zohar, there is no emunah without emet. Okay, then where have we seen something like this? This idea of emet, we hold these truths to be self-evident. What truths, right? This is the kind of truth that they're talking about, I think, right? So I brought this because I'm like, okay, well, that makes some sense. We believe in the rights of human beings in this country because we believe them to be truths. Ah, so it's not so unfamiliar to us, really, right? And the founding, they were fathers, of course. Yeah. The founding fathers were people of faith. They they knew scripture. They knew texts. There it is. We hold these truths to be evident. Then we believe there should be a government 
that right that is built on those truths. But these are not truths that you can like prove, like the glass holds 30 milligrams of liquid, milliliters. So do you get what I'm saying? So what does truth mean then? <laughs> right? If belief, trust, faith is dependent on truth, what is truth? All right. So, yeah. Okay. Harav Shagar, looking at the Zohar, says faith belongs to the subjective plane. Emunah belongs to the subjective plane, while emet reflects objective cognition. There is a serious shortcoming in acting on the basis of a consciousness that remains in the region of subjective experience alone. Meaning, you need both. The subjective and the objective to have a real grounded, right, faith, if if we want to call it that. Um, all right. So I'm not going to go too much into that, but I'm just showing you that, that this idea keeps coming down through the thought and responses to these texts that, that believe Emet and Emunah are intimately connected somehow. So then do y'all remember I sent you an article? Rabbi Alfredo Borodowski, the bipolar rabbi. That's how he goes. That's his tagline, the bipolar rabbi. Um, I sent you an article that he wrote, right, about truth. What is it to live in a world without truth? I get some truths, he says, and moral guidance from religion. All people are created equal. Do not place a stumbling block before the blind. However, the ultimate gift of religion for me is not a specific truth, but the very acknowledgement that there is a sphere of existence existence that transcends me, that there's a beyond, and that in the search for it, we declare our own inadequacies. The truth will matter again when we realize we don't have it. And that's what religion means to me, right? So he's somebody who came back to organized religion in this case, Judaism, because he realized there is a truth bigger than each of us. And it is collectively that we have a better shot at accessing it, including collectively, meaning the generations before us who have interpreted these texts and handed down their insights and their wisdom to us. Revelation is true, but not absolute, meaning it is Evolving, right? And so that distinguishes it from ideologies and fundamentalism. He says, orphans of transcendence, uh, oh my God, I can't talk today. Orphans of transcendence, our youth have fallen into ideological abysses. Thirsty for something valid and lasting in a world empty of truths, they uncritically grab a cause. They experience meaning deprivation. I feel their pain and disorientation. When in the name of the self, we castrated religion, the gates of meaning narrowed. Politics and ideology substituted critical thinking, piety, and the search for the transcendent. Fortunately, the return by many to wisdom belief systems may serve as an alternative to the ideological war. As we hope for universities to steer back into the path of debate and the search for truth, we may consider living according to those old beliefs that foster humility as much as empowerment and servitude, as much as self-realization. What if we were living according to those old beliefs that foster humility as much as empowerment and servitude as much as self-realization, right? So in, in the 
giving up the search for truth because we don't teach it as related to something big. And I'm not talking God here. I'm talking the big project. He's saying these these young people are experiencing meaning deprivation. And so they latch on to the biggest, loudest, newest concept, I would say, fundamentalist concept. And I don't mean, again, the right. It's on the left, too. Like, what is the new fundamentalism that I have to believe to be right and to feel safe and to feel like, but but ultimately it comes out of meaning deprivation. So then I gave you Rabbi Art Green um, from his book, Radical Judaism, on on experiences that are that, that are how we experience stuff as those kinds of experiences that we know something is true out of that experience, not out of a leap of faith, not out of jumping over evidence. We actually experience the holy and awesome presence, right? So to Mark's point, we need to identify that as holy, those moments, right? Where we're very clear, right? That something big has happened, um, and you can read it. It's a it's a beautiful paragraph. It's a it's a beautiful piece. Um, and I will close um, with this rabbi rather disturbing um, piece by Rabbi Amy Scheinerman, who's who's talking about um, the book 1984. Uh, no, what's the Big Brother Orwell book? 1984. She's talking about 1984 and having read it in high school. But she said I read it in high school in an era where we watched the news together and everybody agreed on the facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you know, so she says Orwell well understood the danger of totalitarianism in a modern media saturated world. The very concept of objective truth is fading out of the world. Lies will pass into history. When Stephen Colbert first introduced truthiness, it seemed funny. And there's a link to the video. As time goes on and we live it more and more, it seems decreasingly funny. Today, we are told we live in a post-truth alternative fact world. Maria Konnikova warns, quote, our brains are particularly ill-equipped to deal with lies when they come not singly, but in a constant stream. When we are overwhelmed with false or potentially false statements our brains pretty quickly become so overworked that we stop trying to sift through everything. It's called cognitive load. Our limited cognitive resources are overburdened. It doesn't matter how implausible the statements are, throw out enough of them and people will inevitably absorb some. Eventually, without quite realizing it, our brains just give up trying to figure out what is true. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.